What's up, everyone? Welcome into the next edition of the Mental Game Podcast. I'm Sam Brief, your host here in Chicago, and I've got a big one for you today. A big get here on the Mental Game, and it's 13-year MLB veteran, World Series champion, gold glove winner, Josh Reddick. Now, if you're a baseball fan, you probably know Josh's name because of all those accolades I just told you. He was part of the admittedly controversial 2017 Houston Astros World Series championship, which we will definitely get to later. Talk about the mental game of processing what was an internationally covered cheating scandal. But Josh is so much more than all that. Part of the reason I wanted to have Josh on was because he really rose from the bottom. It's a little cliche, oh, sort of from the bottom, now he's here. But Josh kind of did. In seventh grade and in eighth grade, the dude was cut from his middle school baseball team. Like, cut. Told, hey, you're not even one of the 20 best players to be on the team. And then he played 13 years in Major League Baseball. Well, how do you get from point A to point B? A lot of it is in the mind. A lot of it is the mental game. And Josh Reddick has a really strong mental game that he's honed over the years. So we dive into that and a whole lot more, including his final chapter of playing baseball. I actually met Josh a few times during the Australian summer, which was the American winter of 2022. He was playing for the Perth Heat. I was broadcasting for the Brisbane Bandits. And for Josh, that was his swan song, his last season of pro ball. He brought his wife, his two little boys, and they had an awesome time. So we talk about putting that capstone into his Major League Baseball career. You will love the mindset of Josh Reddick, and I think you'll learn a lot. So without further ado, here is the World Series champion himself, Josh Reddick, coming in three, two, one. And now it's an honor to bring on to the Mental Game Podcast, veteran of Major League Baseball, a World Series champion, Josh Reddick. Welcome to the Mental Game, Josh. Sam, how are we doing today? Happy to be here, bud. I feel like I have to ask this to any World Series champion because that is such a headline. But what do you feel in your mind and in your body when you hear World Series champion, Josh Reddick? The five-year-old kid in the backyard having all his dreams come true and everything he ever wanted. You know, we, we all dream about being that kid in the backyard, throwing the ball up in the air. Game seven, here comes World Series champion. And, <clears throat> excuse me, just to be able to experience that, there's no feeling better than that. I mean, and then the feeling you have is really unexplainable because there's so many emotions running in and out of your body <clears throat> that you just go out there and you, you start hugging all your teammates and then you can't help but cry because you're so happy and excited. But, it, you know, it never gets old hearing that. World Series champion Josh Reddick. If it never gets old, I'll just keep saying it to keep go ahead. floating your boat. <laughs> well, you mentioned that amazing elation feeling that you had when you won the World Series, which was six years ago. But you probably had the opposite feeling when you were in seventh grade and then eighth grade when you got cut from your middle school baseball team. Now, this is one of the only things that you and I have in common is that we got cut from our middle league baseball teams. I gave up on the dream, got into broadcasting. Now I have a new dream. I couldn't be happier. But you, Josh Reddick, stuck with the baseball dream. Take me to the day in eighth grade when you got cut. What did you feel? How did you react? Um, from what I remember, pretty, pretty upset, sad, angry. Um, you know, I, I, all these kids, all these guys that I had played with, 
in travel ball were on the team tryouts. All made this. All made the high school team on both high on both middle schools. Sorry. Um, it was funny because I was a starting shortstop on our travel ball team, but I didn't make the school team. And then our starting third baseman was our shortstop in middle school. So um, politics are everywhere. You hear about it and see it every day, and especially nowadays with social media the way it is. But you know, my parents weren't some of the parents that were taking time and buying in their kids playing time. And that just wasn't, wasn't what we were about. And I was clearly better than what was on the team. So I made sure that, you know, I went out there and I kept busting my butt to show them that I was better. And after the second year, my dad ended up starting his own travel ball team and taking all of us misfits as we called us that nobody wanted. And uh, we were called the renegades because it was kind of like our thing to be the outcast of the popularity scene and, we ended up being better than, you know, the other two travel ball teams that all the high school guys played on. We met with them in tournaments and ended up beating, not only beating them, but beating them by a lot. So um, it all came around full circle. And, you know, the, the coach that cut me from middle school thought he was doing me a favor because he had the nerve to come up to me probably, gosh, probably 10 years later, probably more than that, probably 10, 11, 12 years later. I was at the high school going to hit with my high school coach, and he came up to me and had the nerve to tell me that, he said, you're welcome for um, giving you the work ethic and the drive to make yourself a better ball player. And I can't say what I said on your podcast, but let's just say it wasn't very pleasant, especially in a high school hallway, much less anywhere else. So we'll just leave it at that. Whatever it is, and I have an imagination, so I can think of a few possibilities. I yes. think it was well-deserved, Josh. And you certainly Absolutely. kept that chip on your shoulder. You're stud in high school, you play in college, you get drafted, you make it to the bigs. How much do you think your mindset in making it through the ranks and proving people wrong was shaped by what happened in eighth grade when you were cut and your dad put you on this team literally called the Renegades? Well, I think it was kind of just like, you know, we wanted to all get out there and show them that we were good enough and kind of, you know, show them what we were about and make sure that, you know, it's not all about politics when you're trying to win at sports. Because I, I just feel like we, we might have wanted it a little bit more just because we were those group of guys that nobody wanted. And we just wanted to prove a point that we were going to beat them our way and not necessarily the, you know, the political middle school baseball way that they always went about. They ought to make a Hollywood feature film about you guys. I mean, you have a team full of misfits who don't make the team your dad starts the team and then you kick their ass. That sounds like a film. It was, it was pretty spectacular. I mean, it's, it, it could be, it could be a very good film because not only just, it wasn't just local teams we were, we were, we were whooping up on too. We traveled hours away from our hometown, all around the Savannah, Georgia area, from, you know, Florida to Carolina and just everywhere we went, we just seemed to have the, the little bit of that edge that, really ever had I guess you would call it kind of like a roughneck edge and we were just scrappy and just you know played the game hard and we put pressure on you we we, we got on base my dad would be coaching third base and there was none of this no signs it was just hey go stop it it was it was amazing because my dad said if you don't steal I'm taking you out of the game so like by the second pitch you'd be still in a second at second base and nobody could throw you out it was, it was pretty funny to, to be a part of when, when when we were telling them what was happening and they still couldn't stop it I love it. You're giving me vivid scenes for our movie, so we'll we'll split it 50-50. But for now, let's just continue the podcast. Josh, you keep using the word edge, and watching you, 
when you were with Oakland, with Houston, and, and this year in Australia when you were with the Perth Heat, you always seemed to have that edge. It didn't seem to me, at least, like it disappeared. So to what extent did that edge stick with you and affect you as you rose the ranks? Oh, uh, that, that, that just goes back to being a kid and, you know, the way my parents taught me how to play the game. If, I, if you were going to go out there and, and play baseball, not just baseball, I, I tell kids all this time, anything you apply yourself to in life, if you're going to do it, go out there and bust your ass and do it 100%. Don't half-ass anything. And I made sure that every time I stepped in those lines, I was going to leave it all out there that day and then turn around the next day and do it all over again. And I took that all the way through the end of my career. And, you know, what you saw in Australia, I think, was maybe – Maybe a little bit more because I knew that this was kind of my farewell tour to retirement. Um, so I wanted to make sure that I got every last ounce of everything I could squeeze out of this body to give back to the game of baseball. And I just tried to show my teammates that. And, you know, hopefully if I help them build up off of that and they can find an extra gear to get themselves going to where they need to be, then, then obviously I did what I was supposed to. That edge, that mindset, what was the most different part of it when we're talking about the 35-year-old Josh Reddick in Perth versus the 13-year-old Josh Reddick on the Renegades. Biggest difference? Ooh, um, probably, you know, when, when I was 13, when you're 13, 14, that age group, and, and you know, you can tell, and I, and, I don't, and I don't want your listeners to think I'm coming off as cocky or conceited with this comment because I'm, I'm really not. But you look around at all who you're playing with and who you're playing against, and you realize – your talent level is ab above where they're at and where they can even reach. And I think that helped me out because I wanted to show them that, yeah, I'm the best player out here and I'm going to show you how. And I took that all the way through my career. If I was going to go to a game, if it was April 2nd in Oakland, California, or, you know, January 7th in Perth, Australia, I was going to do my best to be the best player that day. And then I was going to do it again the next day and the next day and the next day. So that was what I had to keep my mindset was no matter where I was at. If I walked out into a baseball field out here right now, I was going to try to show them that I would be the best player on that field for that day. How much of that mindset was shaped by your parents? You mentioned your dad being your coach, starting that team. To what extent did they help? A lot, you know, and for a lot of people who don't know about my, my dad, my dad was electrocuted in 1988. Um, so he lost half of his left arm and most of his right hand. So he only has three fingers on his right hand. He was a linesman for the power company. So he was badly injured. And for years, he couldn't learn how to throw a baseball. So my mom was our be my batting practice thrower for me and my older brother. So she would be the one in the front yard. And then my dad always told me, like, he would sit inside and get depressed that he couldn't be out there. And one day he finally had enough of it and taught himself how to throw a baseball and how to swing a bat again so he could get out there and play with his kids. And always told us, you know, God doesn't make junk, and there's a reason we're all still here at this point. So why not make the best of it and take advantage of that opportunity? So he always wanted to make sure that I pushed myself to not take anything for granted. And that's what I tried to preach about. And, you know, everybody gets all this credit about dads taking care of them in sports, but – you know, you look back and, and I can happily say that my mom was a big part of me growing up and being a baseball player because she was the one out there doing it before my dad learned. And still after my dad learned, she was out there throwing the ball to me and my brother. So that, that was what we, we, we strive for to, to make it happen. God doesn't make junk. No one is cool. junk. You are not junk. I am not junk. Nope. That is amazing.
end quote. <laughs> you mentioned both of your parents, your mom's role, throwing you batting practice, and of course your dad's accident. I read that he was actually pronounced dead twice at the scene before coming back and being able to live the life he lived, uh, coaching you while you were coming of age. To what extent do you think that accident gave him the edge that he passed down to you that you carried throughout your career? I think it just teaches you that you don't take anything for granted. There was a reason that, you know, he did let my dad go. He told him to, you know, make sure that he had, he hung on. And it was just another opportunity for him to live and, you know, do something in this world that maybe somebody else hadn't done yet. And it's pretty spectacular for your listeners. If they want to Google Kenny Reddick, you can read all about it, about how he's, he had the out-of-body experience. He saw the white light. He had everything. He saw everything you experience when you die. And he said, I was floating above my body. And then all of a sudden I was back on the table and looking up at the operating lights. It's pretty, uh, pretty surreal to hear about. But when you look at something like that, there's obviously some specific reason that the big man upstairs puts you back into this world. And, you know, I think he's definitely making the most of it. I will attest to what Josh just said, that if you Google Kenny Reddick and read about the story and read about what he experienced, you will not regret it. So after you listen you to might, this, you might cry. take a look. Yeah, I, I'd be lying if I didn't if I said tears weren't flowing. Right. It's amazing to hear about that. Um, and, mm-hmm. and Josh, I, I can see that it's shaped you in so many ways. And yeah. when I look forward to what happened after that, my mind in analyzing and looking at a Major League Baseball player, there are a few days that are landmarks. There's the day you get drafted. There's the day you make your debut. And then there's your career milestones, right? Your thousandth hit, maybe winning mm-hmm. the World Series. When I mentioned those days, those. which one do you remember most vividly? <laughs> are we looking at champagne, by the way? Oh, uh, so yeah. So World this Series? Is, um, this We're now doing my... some show and tell. <laughs> This is my bottle my agency sent me when I got my 10 years of service. And so as if, for those that don't know, when you get 10 years of major league service of baseball, you hit your pension. So that's the second thing that baseball players strive for. Obviously the world series championship being number one, and then two being set for life on your pension, regardless of how much you sign for. And, then and that, also was, you get a, a free ticket, right? Golden ticket to any MLB game, right? That, that's eight and a half years. So eight and a half years, you get your gold card. You and a guest get to go to any baseball game in any stadium for free as long as it's not a playoff game or anything like that. They have to give you the two best available seats in the stadium for you and your guest. But I was trying to, I was trying to show you that one. Gold glove. So, yeah. But, yeah, so you go back to milestones, that, you know, in, in those days you can replay in your head over and over. You know, the day I got drafted, I was sitting here to be honest with you, I was pissed. I was pissed the day I got drafted because I had four teams tell me I was going to go top 10 and I ended up going 17th round of the Red Sox. I was so mad and I turned down their offer immediately, um, played summer ball that summer and ended up having a great summer with a wooden bat and they re-offered me. I ended up signing um, and going and playing professionally. But yeah, you talk about, you know, not only just your debut, but your professional debut. You'll always remember your first minor league game. You'll always remember your first major league game. Um Everything, you know, and I think the milestones fall in order. You know, obviously, World Series has to be number one. World Series champion has to be number one. Um, you know, debut, your debut is always a, a pretty pretty special day. Um, for me, it was pretty crazy because I was in double A, had just played a night game, had an eight-hour bus trip, 
Had a game the next day. I can't remember where we were at. So obviously we get in super late. I'm sleeping. It's like 11 a.m. and my hotel room room phone rings because this is before you know cell phones were a big deal. And it was my manager telling me to meet him downstairs and bring all my stuff. It was at the trade deadline, so I thought I was traded. Last day of the trade deadline, I thought I got traded. Is what it is. Waited for like an hour. Manager comes back. Hey, man, go back to your room. We don't know what's going to happen. So I go back and get some breakfast. As soon as I finish my breakfast, hey, come back down with your stuff. You're out of here. Didn't tell me where I was going. Comes down and there's a car waiting for me outside. He says, all right, here's the deal. You're going to take a three and a half hour car ride to Baltimore. You're going to maybe meet up with the big league team. Not traded, by the way. They might need you. They might not. Depends on what the injury list is all about. So for three and a half hours, I didn't know whether I was going to be activated on the big league roster or sit in a hotel room for two days and then go right back to double A. So that was my option. So the whole time I'm making phone calls, calling my parents, calling my friends. Hey, I might make my debut soon, blah, blah, blah. And if you know anything, I was going to Baltimore, which is, is as most people know, that's Fenway South. That's more Red Sox fans than Orioles fans by far, especially way back in 2009. Maybe not now, but way back in 2009. And everybody knew. Everybody knows where the team stays. So the team hotel is just full of Red Sox fans. I think I pulled up at about four o'clock. So everybody's in. There's all these Red Sox fans in the lobby. I got my suitcase, my Boston Red Sox bag, my Boston Red Sox bat bag, and everybody in Boston Red Sox nation knows who you are. So they start cheering for me in the hotel lobby. I'm stoked. My heart's racing. I'm checking in, and everybody's just cheering me, high fiving me, handshaking me. One of the coolest things ever. I get to my room. As soon as I put my key card in, Theo Epstein calls me and says, Josh, we need you at the ballpark. Come on out. So I literally didn't even get to walk in my room, chucked my suitcase on the floor, and got right back downstairs, and I got an even louder ovation because they knew where I was going. Hopped in a cab and went to the ballpark. Got there for BP. I didn't play. I got to pinch hit and play defense in the ninth that night. So I made my debut, but then the next day I made my first start, got my first hit, and got that out of the way quick. So it was a pretty, uh, pretty emotional and long day for me on my debut day. Wow, the feeling of getting cheered in the hotel lobby must have changed you in some ways. I'm really curious about that. Praise. As a Major League Baseball player, you get praised constantly by the fans. You get cheered when you're at home. You're used to that. How does it affect you if it does at all? Oh, it affected me big time. I was only 22 years old when I made my debut. So this is all as a 22-year-old straight from AA playing in front of maybe 4,000 fans every now and then. So to have, you know, a hundred people in this small hotel lobby, just, you know, know who I was first of all, and cheering for me. I don't think you get that everywhere. Obviously I think, you know, when, when you look and talk about Red Sox nation, it's, it's, it's different. It's a different kind of fan base because they know who you are, whether you're a rookie or whether you're David Ortiz and they're going to recognize you walking on the street. They're going to offer to pay for your meal. They're going to offer to buy you a drink. They're going to take care of you because they are Red Sox fans and that's what they want. They are a sports town who preaches Red Sox, Patriots, Celtics, Bruins. They are obsessed with every major sports team that they have, and they take care of their own. Do you get anxious before games, during games? All the time. All the time. Anxiety is a, a, a major issue. Well, I don't know if issue is the right word. Um, is, is a factor. Let's go with factor. It's a big factor in a lot of games for a lot of guys, and if you don't know how to control that, then you're going to have a rough time. Because, you know, there's all kinds of things that play in anxiety. And it's not just playing the game. It's about, you know, being in the minors, grinding, the travel, 
Hotels you stay in the lower minors aren't the best. Food, you don't get a whole lot of money. And I think when I was in double A, before I got put on the roster, I was making maybe a thousand bucks a month. And luckily, I didn't have to pay rent. I had a, we had what what's called host families, and they took care of us. But um, like, let's just say high A, single A baseball, making eight hundred bucks, eight hundred bucks a month, paying four hundred dollars a month in rent. So four hundred dollars just to live on for a month. I was eating a lot of ramen, spaghettios, a lot of cheap food. So I was eating a lot of broke food as a young kid. If you don't have the the love for the game and the heart and the drive and the desire, you're not going to make it because that that anxiety does kick in, and you know you can get depressed at some points when things don't work out. But you know, I, I always I always look back at there was only one thing I wanted to do in life, and that was be a major league baseball player. Nothing was going to stop me, and you have to keep that mindset the whole time in your career because once you make it. They always said making it's easy, easy part. It's not easy. Making it to the big leagues is the easy part. It's staying there because there's always – there's hundreds and hundreds of baseball players, whether they're in your organization, on your rival team, or across the country, or even the world at this point, who are thriving to take your job and take your money. And that's the way I looked at it. I was always going to keep my job because nobody's going to go out there and take my money. I guarantee you that right now. Nobody's going to take my money because I grew up with not a whole lot, I wasn't making anything in the minors. I didn't get a big signing bonus. And so I wanted to make sure that I had myself taken care of on and off the field. You mentioned money and the finances of it. Someone like you, who wasn't raised with a lot of money, who when you started your career, you were making chump change. I mean, it's at the poverty line what minor league baseball players make. So how does the money change you? You signed a $52 million contract in 2016 did that change you a little bit i would i would i would be skeptical to say no because i think no matter who you are i think you getting money is, is always going to change you just a little bit um but it, it didn't change me i don't think for the worse it just made me buy maybe a little bit more fancier exotic cars um i, I went and what's your favorite nice- at this moment, I have a 2017 Lamborghini Huracan that I bought for myself after we won the World Series. And it's Spider-Man wrapped. So it's got a Spider-Man wrapped job all the way around it. So that will be my Did favorite. I notice you drinking out of a Spider-Man cup as well? Yes, you did. My Spider-Man tumbler, yeah. <laughs> Spider-Man superfan, Josh Reddick. That, no, I, I am Spider-Man, Sam. You just don't know it. <laughs> I am. Wow, I didn't think I was going to land Spider-Man on the podcast, but I guess it took three years and here I am. There you go. So you were saying with the moolah. Yes. So um, I, when I first signed, I ended up buying um, a brand new Range Rover, which can get over 100000 I was like, I'm going to splurge on myself. And I said, if we win the World Series, my World Series share will be spent on some exotic car. And that's where the Lamborghini came from. As soon as I signed and I agreed, I flew out to Houston to start house looking because the people know Texas, the income taxes are zero. Whereas I'm from Georgia. They're not high, but if I can get Georgia residency off my title and my name, then I can make so much more money by living in Texas. So that was one thing I did. I splurged a good amount of money on a, on a nicer house in a nicer area of Houston where I could make sure that I was happy and I was safe and just comfortable. It's all about being comfortable. If you want to go home, you want to be able to go home at night. Not people, many people can say that because when I was in Oakland, a, I had to rent apartments. I had to Airbnb houses all year and it just wasn't home. Um, but when you can go home every night after a baseball game and, you know, not have to worry about messing up anything, 
and not breaking anything. You can only be mad at yourself that way as opposed to having to tell somebody at the leasing office that something broke. But just having that comfortability of being able to go home every night was huge. By that time, 2016, you had established yourself as a major leaguer. You won the World Series with Houston the next year. In what ways did that anxiety still show up? I think the bigger anxiety points for me, it comes when, when big at bats, the big moments in games kick in. So, you know, you're in the bottom of the eighth at home. You're down a run with two outs and a guy at third, and you got the tough lefty on the mound who's there solely to get you out that night. That's all his job is to, you know, here's so-and-so. When we get to a big situation, your job is to get Josh Reddick out for the night and your job's over. So the heart starts racing. Everything kicks in. Everything speeds up. You just have to find ways to slow that down. You get in the on-deck circle analyze your situation, run it all through your head, and make sure you come out with a positive, you know, outlook on that. You don't want to go into the box with a negative mindset because once you do that, you're already defeated. This game's already hard enough as it is without your self-talk putting you down. And we always say this little guy on the shoulder who's going to chirp in your ear about, you know, how you can fail in a game that already has a 80 85% failure rate. And if you fail 70% of the time, you're considered a Hall of Famer for your whole career. So if you learn to deal with failure a lot sooner than when you don't, you're going to be a lot better in the long run when you learn how to take those deep breaths and, you know, have that tunnel vision of just you and the pitchers, just you and him out there going at it. And you're going to war with that guy and you're going to do everything in your power and he's going to do everything in his power to put you down. Before that major at-bat, the World Series, millions of eyes watching you, What's the non-negotiable strategy? I'm hearing self-talk. I'm hearing deep breaths. What more than anything is the key for you to temper that anxiety? It goes back to telling myself I'm the best player in that situation at that moment. I have to give myself all that confidence in the world to go out there and show them that I'm the best player and the best person to be in that scenario. Self-talk. Self-talk. Yep. That's all it is. It, it's you know I always tell these guys, when I was playing and guys were struggling, um, and, and one guy that always pops in my head is Altuve because Altuve would that first year, obviously when he won the MVP, he didn't need any help from anybody. Um, and Altuve, when he's when he's over for ten, that's more like an O for thirty for somebody else because you're just not used to seeing that guy struggle. And whenever he would struggle, it's always something simple. I always tell my guys or everybody that I talk to or advice like it's always something simple, man, because everything's so connected in baseball. When you're hitting, if these eyes fly open. Shoulder flies open, the hip flies open, the legs loose, you lose all your legs. So it's all simple. One thing connects to another. And that's where it starts. When it starts with something small, it ends up growing into something big. So if you can talk yourself into keeping that positivity and mindset that you're going to do great and you're going to do something successful, then you're just setting yourself up for that. And it's going to help you deal with the failure because you did everything in your power to get yourself in the right situation and the right mindset to, to succeed. And, even, and if you don't, you don't. You move on. Go to sleep, come back the next day, and hope you get put in that same situation again, and you do the exact same thing, and you succeed. Succeed. I'm hearing that word a couple of times. I'm really curious your definition of success. You said the little kid wanted to make it to the bigs. You want to win a World Series, Gold Glove, the tenure with uh, ten years. What is success in your mind for Josh Reddick? Winning, winning one game at a time. You go out there every day, and it's very – all these comments are cliche, but you take it one game at a time because that's all you can do. Why You can't win today thinking about tomorrow, and you can't win today thinking about yesterday. Yesterday's failures 
could be today's success. So, and that's the beauty of baseball is you have to have such a short, short memory and be able to move on because it's a 162 game season to just move on, let it go, come home, have a, have an outlet. Always tell my guys, like if you're struggling and you're dealing with, you know, the mental side of things, you need to have an outlet when you go home. And my outlet for me, video games. I played a lot of video games when I was playing in my career before I had kids. I would always go home, find some game, whether, you know, any game, doesn't matter what it is, find a game, read a book, you know, watch TV, find your TV series show to watch, watch Harry Potter, you know, find something, do something that gives you an outlet to escape from the game because you're already there so long. You're there from one o'clock to 11 o'clock every day. And you're putting so much stress and grind on your body and your mind that you have to have some kind of release from it. You have to forget about it and move on because as soon as you wake up the next day and after you have your breakfast, the head clicks right back on into baseball. Josh, I think that's really wise, not just for a baseball player, but for anyone in any line of work. And I can attest to it as a broadcaster. My first year broadcasting minor league baseball, I would come home and my young, ambitious self would get working on the game notes and the prep for the next day's game. And I was so burned out by August. But now, a few years in, I go home, I watch Seinfeld with my fiance, and it's beautiful. There you go. And you forget about everything else in the world. You forget about everything else in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Josh, on the note of family, and I'm bringing this up because I know your family, your wife and your two boys play a big role in this decision, but you were tired, and then you said, no, I'm going to go to Australia and play one more year of baseball, and then you were tired. Why'd you make that decision to go down under, and you brought your family? So the, it's funny because the Australia trip had been planned for a couple of years. Um, there was obviously no contract involved, but I played against Luke Hughes, minors. And, you know, everybody in the Australian Baseball League knows all about Luke Hughes being the legend that he is. Um, and so I played against him with the when he was with the Twins and I was with the Red Sox. Every level we'd go to, we'd play against each other. And we had a brief – we were brief teammates, I think, for like six days in Oakland when he got called up. And then ironically, my when my wife lived in Australia, she lived in Queensland for two and a half years while she was studying abroad and just traveling the world. One of her best friends ended up being Luke's fiance. And we got to talking randomly and she goes, Josh, you should really try to think about when you're done with your career, just playing a year out there. We can go out there and just have a vacation. And um, then the boys were born. I was like, oh, this will be a great, you know, nice little vacation for the boys to see the world. I get to go see the world because she'd already been around to go see what it's all about. And I get to play baseball at the same time. So it was always something that was in the works. I guess it just kind of depended on where Luke was living at the time. <laughs> because as we all know, he was with Melbourne. And when they trained, you know, when they transitioned to Perth, it was just the timing that brought me to Perth. So it just ended up working out that way that I had connections in the ABL already. And you and I were down there at the same time. I see that you're wearing your Perth Heat black shirt. We're actually talking on the day of the new ABL season starting. And I know there's a part of you now that you're retired that really wishes you were down there still playing. I do. I wish I was down there playing with all of them right now. It just, you know, it's, it's like I've told you, it was, it was a lot of fun to be there, different kind of baseball, different kind of, you know, love of the game for those guys. Because you, you, you see all these guys, like, you know, over, over, way over half the league. These guys work Monday through Friday jobs, and they come straight to the ballpark for practice, and they travel and leave their families and, you know, take off work to go play in this professional baseball league. And, you know, the dedication that these guys 
take does not get, you know, noticed enough as it should be. And, you know, I'm still good buddies with a couple of those guys. And me and ba Jake Bowie are in contact a lot. And, you know, he's messaging me at 5 a.m. his time to about to go to work. And then he's got to play a seven o'clock game that night. And then, you know, going to work on a Thursday and getting off at work at Thursday at five o'clock and then taking a red eye flight at 1130 to fly to Melbourne to play the Aces. So um, definitely that big that big grind when those guys are, you know, working nine to fivers or day jobs and then going out in there and busting their ass to play baseball. It just shows you how much they love the game. Josh, what does it mean to you to have your boys watching you? Thinking of the relationship you had growing up with your parents, coaching you, what did that mean? Oh, everything. I just only wish I had more time for them to experience that because they love going to the ballpark. I always think about, you know, the, the beauty of, of being in the ABL was I'd be out in right field and if we had a moment to kind of take a break or a mountain visit or something like that, I could always – look over to my left, especially in Perth, my wife would always sit closer to me in right field so the boys could run around. I could always just watch them and watch what they were doing and just watch their smile on their faces because they found friends to play with and just to be at the ballpark. And in, in Arizona, when I was briefly with the Diamondbacks, they had such a great setup for the kids that the boys just loved going to the ballpark every day and um, playing in the kids' room. They had a great kids' room with toys and climbing stuff and just being able to walk on the field that was the best that was their favorite thing was as soon as the game was over I want to go on the field I want to go run the bases and so every day we have to go on the field and let them run around and that was the the beauty of the ABO they started they let fans on the field and you know all these kids are running around and getting that fan interaction whereas you know in like MLB you can only be restricted to the grass area because as soon as the game's over the grounds crew's getting ready for the next day um but that was the one thing they love they just love being there and going going on the field with daddy and just running around and, and having that, that joy of, of just being there. I can't imagine what that felt like for you. What do you think the eighth grade Josh Reddick, who was cut from the middle school team, would say if I told you you'd be a World Series champion running the base paths in Australia with your two sons? It's crazy. I wouldn't have believed it. I probably would have asked where Australia was at that time. Because <laughs> I don't think even in eighth grade, I knew exactly where Australia was in, in the world. So if somebody told me that, I would have probably looked at him and, and told him, man, I could I could only hope that happens. And um, that's, that would be a dream come true. So definitely an unbelievable thing to be able to hear. Josh, I know you're an open book. And the only reason I'm asking you about this is because I want to get a little mental game type perspective on – the 2017 Astros scandal. Yep. Because in life, people deal with all sorts of setbacks, right? It might be a scandal in their personal life. It might be a health issue, and they have to go do their jobs and live their lives with that kind of cloud hanging over them. So I'm not, I don't care about the scandal. That's, that's over. You weren't even a part of it, and it's been analyzed every which way. There's documentaries if you want to learn about it. So I'm more curious about when you were dealing with the hate Fans on Twitter all over you, fans booing you guys at the ballpark. How were you able to go about your job, and how did it feel mentally during that season? The 2020 season, I think a lot of us got lucky because, you know, and I don't want to say lucky because COVID hitting, because nothing, those two words could even be shared in the same sentence because of that. Um, but not having fans, I think, was a, a lot easier way to cope with something like that. Um, but when it happened and when, you know, all the – apologies we were given and we did that big media day before spring training started um it was tough you know i was getting death threats on every social media account i had 
um, the amount of hate that was just getting spilled over. I just, I ended up deleting Instagram, Twitter, and all that stuff just so I didn't have to view it because it was just overflowing of everything. And then you look back at all the teams that we beat, you know, the Dodgers fans obviously being the worst at it because we beat them in the World Series and, you know, all these teams that just had so much hate. And the funny thing is, is I think that gets overlooked in that. And I'm not trying to push blame or, or, you know, reflect, deflect it from our guys, because yes, at the end of the day, what we did might've been wrong. At the end of the day, we weren't the only team doing something like that. MLB put themselves in that situation by giving live feed cameras to a bunch of professional athletes whose job is to gain the upper hand on the other team. There again, it wasn't right. It, you know, it wasn't right. Let's just, you know, leave it at that. Um, But yeah, it's just, you know, when, you, when you're receiving death threats, it's a whole different world looking at things because you're constantly looking over your shoulder. And I'm thankful. I am very thankful that my parent, my, my parents, my wife and my kids didn't have to go to the ballpark because even if we did, I would have told them to stay home. I was like, no, you're just going to stay in Houston. You're not going anywhere on the road because we're not dealing with that. Because I've had people tell, you know, say things about my, my kids were not even one yet, getting almost one, getting spit stuff about, how they wish they were dead and blah, all this crazy stuff. It was unreal. The audacity that people have to say things about a human being over a sport. Sport. It's like you would think we declared war on the United States of how much hate was getting thrown around. And I tell guys, because, and I'll give you a perfect example of how much I loved it because Brisbane was one of my favorite places to play. Not because of how well the ball went, how good of teams we had going in there, but, the chirping fans up the first baseline. The outlaws. That little crew. I love them. I loved them from day one, and I got warned from everybody. Dog, you're going to hate them. They don't ever shut up. Blah, blah, blah. And, of course, my first at bat, they got their little chair. We bang our bin. For you, for you. I'm smiling. I'm smiling in the batter's box. And of course, what do I do my first, home, my first at bat? I hit a home run. And so I come around third base, and I'm doing this. Chirping and chirping. And then after the game – they started chirping a little bit, but after the series was over, after that last game before we went back to Perth, they all came down, introduced themselves, and said, "Hey, man, I hope you don't think we were getting. You know, we don't want you to be mad at us because we're just having fun." I was like, "Dudes, look at it this way: if I was in your shoes, I would have been doing the exact same thing. Because if you were a guy in my spot, I would have been chirping, probably even worse than what you were doing. So I applaud you. You guys are having fun. There's nothing wrong with that, and I can take it. But I'm gonna dish it right back out." And they go, man, we love that about you, that you're going to take it and then give it right back to us. And that's what we love. That's what we love to see. So they made my day when they came down and did that because all their little chants, I love all their – I still I still sing the um, – what is it? Um, God, what was the first baseman's name? The German guy. Donald Lutz. Donald Lutz. Donald Lutz is magic. magic. He wears, he wears magic a magic hat. hat. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> sing that one all the time. And then when the ball – the crickets at the Gabba – the crickets had together. And so when we got there in the playoffs, I don't know if you heard me, every time they would throw a ball in the dirt, I would chirp that to them. Because <laughs> oh, you're you right ready. under them. Yeah, they said, we hear you ready. And I would sit on the chairs down the line, so I wouldn't sit in the dugout. I would make sure they'd hear me. They're like, we hear you, Reddick. We hear you. So this, it's fans like that that make the game a lot more fun and take the stress off. And, you know, and honestly, it takes all that stress and anxiety off because you want to shut them up. But at the same time, they keep you laughing. And, you know, I'd be out there in right field. Donald Lutz is magic. He wears a magic hat. So it was 
it, it's always fun to be a part of them when you, when you get special guys like that, because those guys will be some people that I will always remember for the rest of my life. And it's a great reminder to where you started your answer. It's just sports. We can have a little bit of fun. Absolutely. Josh, you are magic. You wear a magic hat. I really appreciate you coming on the mental game. Absolutely, Sam. Thank you. Back here in the studio, what a great chat with Josh Reddick. His father's story is amazing, and I do highly suggest you take him up on the offer to Google it, read about it. It's inspiring. His story, also inspiring, from being cut to lifting the World Series trophy. So Josh Reddick, an awesome guy, wishing him all the best in retirement. Now here on The Mental Game, we're doing some big things. Not only are we on Patreon, where you can become an MVP member, what we call a mental gamer, and get exclusive access to bonus episodes, live Q&As with some select guests, and more. But also, we're always proud to be a partner of the Lasers Ladybug Society, wonderful charity started by my good friends John and Renee Laser to raise mental health awareness and bring more programming to students and all sorts of folks who need it. So we certainly have information on both of those available in the description. And please like, rate, subscribe. All of those things help grow the mental game into what it truly can become. As always, I'm your host and producer, Sam Brief. I'm grateful for your time grateful for your energy, and make sure that for the rest of the day you take care of yourself and take care of others. All right, this has been another episode of the Mental Game Podcast featuring MLB vet Josh Reddick. And for now, from the home studio in Chicago, adios. Adios.